we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back to your listener. Yes, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. No Velvet Glove this week. Uh, just me, the Iron Fist, and I've got Peter with me. Peter, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation and good evening, listeners. So, Peter, uh, you might remember, dear listener, Peter was on when we were talking about the um, the Gospels and the historical Jesus, and uh, that was one of uh, Peter's pet sort of it topics. Is, it is. And he was sitting with me the other day and we were chatting about different things, and we started discussing books, and in particular, uh, Peter's take on, on fictional books and what he reads, and I thought to myself, that would be a good topic for a podcast, particularly because I recognise that a lot of you are totally over COVID and are ready for anything to talk about to get your mind off COVID. So um, other than the brief mention I've just made of COVID just now, you won't hear about it anymore in this episode. So so that's a plus. So, um, so yes, we've got – well, Peter's constructed a list of, of 10 uh, books, not all of them fiction, but we're just going to run through them and just talk about uh, books and see where that leads us and the ideas. Um, Peter, with your list, what, what were you thinking when you created this list? Or, or what was I thinking when I told you to create yeah, a list? <laughs> probably more the right question. Um, oh, these are – we've talked about this and I think, I, just, I think there are books that are good to talk about. They're really mm. important. Um, I mean, that's probably why some books get prescribed for school and things like that. You know, you need to talk about them. And mm. For me, it was Fahrenheit 451. I think for you it's Brave New World, uh, 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 Mr Huxley, yeah. Uh, I certainly like Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Um, you know, there's other – you know, classic school books would have been To Kill a Mockingbird, for yeah. example. That yeah. was one that and was a good it's one. It's a kind of dystopian. Mm. We've both got a common element. Mm. It's kind of that future – Something's not gone right, and why hasn't it gone right? And yes. anyway, it seems to me that it resonates with, hopefully, it resonates with your audience. But I tried to structure some comments around this list um, to make it relevant. But look, the list, the list is um, only books that I've read. Mm. There's nothing here. Um, I, I have a, a, a real dislike of being recommended to read a book by somebody if they haven't read the book. I think you're in the same view as well. Mm. Uh, so, but here, here's my spiel. So I've sort of headed this um, dead poet society. Bit of pun on. Mm. Uh, oh, sorry, Dead Author Society, yeah. or Literature for Busy People. So I want yeah. to acknowledge that limitation first. I've got a habit, for bad or worse, of being selective about the time um, I invest in reading. Mm. Um, um, it sort of manifests itself mainly, observably, when I look at my bookshelf, in mm, a lot of dead authors there, not a lot of current stuff. Um, I, I think it's, for me, I really I like to know, or it's important to me whether the books stood the test of time you know, mm-hmm. and whether I can be assured it's a, it's a book of quality. And quality is an important word for me, a really important mm-hmm. word in, in this session as well. Um, and, and why do I do that? Oh, I'm a busy man, you know. I'm a busy man. I just, mm-hmm. I just can't just spend time reading anything. And I really get frustrated when I'm halfway through a book and I realise I'm, I'm going to throw this away. I'm not going to finish this. Yep. I'm wasting my time. I've wasted a few hours yeah. of my life that I won't get and, back. Yeah. And I, Trevor, you've got a similar kind of a different mm-hmm. approach, but you're – you said mm. you're, you're struggling to find time for fiction amongst everything else that you want to read. Mm. Well, this podcast means I'm having to deal with a lot – I'm wanting to deal with a lot of non-fiction and if I was to pick up fiction, I almost feel like 
what am I doing? I've got all these other books I've yeah. got to read for the yeah. podcast and these other history books in particular that I want to get through. So, um, well, same for yeah. me, and I've got I've got other interests as well, and you mm. know, I do read a lot for my bit for work because mm. I'm a lawyer. So, um, mm. yes, I'm very discriminating, and maybe too discriminating, but um, but look, that's sort of ended up being my general rule. Mm. Um, um, you know, I think I want to read books of real value, um, mm. but it's got its limitations. Um, mm. So, what I've tried to do is that these are books which I've read. Uh, um, I think they've got a strong pedigree. Look, I think they're well written as well. I think it's. Um, not that I'm a writer, but I, look, I have. I've just I'm on the cusp of getting my first journal article published. Right. Yes. Uh, it's yep. going to, this is a dry legal argument. Yes, I that's see. right. It will yeah. be, but uh, it's yeah. going to be in the Australian Business Law Review. And I got back the feedback from the editors, and and the first line was, "It's very interesting and well written." And mm-hmm. to me, when, it goes downhill from there in the comments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, things they want me to correct. But when I got to well written, I went, you know what? That's that's the highest praise. Well, you don't have you to know. be a great tennis player to yeah. appreciate good tennis. Yeah, so yeah. same with writing. Yeah, that's right. There mm. you go. Um, but look, I think this also these books also contain, or hopefully I'll demonstrate they contain a valuable message. Um, and I think it lines up nicely with um, issues, social issues of the kind that you have on your podcast. Um, mm. I like that line about uh, what the hell happened on this planet in the last week. Mm. And hopefully some of these books relate to that. Mm. Um, also, I think I should say um, um, I make no – Apologies about this list. Um, I know when I put it together, I thought to myself, what about there are sensitivities about this all the time. Mm. So I've given no quarter to things like gender balance or cultural balance. These are just books I've read, Mm. you know. So, um, look, if you don't like my list, Mm. um, I just say, hey, tell me, Tommy, your list, mm. and I'd love to hear it because I think um, I actually like lists of books. Mm. I, I think they're quite revealing and then I'll be more informed, I'll be more enlightened. And, mm. um, and I was uh, – but the one thing I did check, I did check the book list on the Ramsey Centre website. Mm. Um, for those who don't know, Ramsey Centre created a bit of a furore because it's they – It's a right-wing group now. Yeah, sort of yeah. bit – they came across mm. a bit like just old white people trying to sort of maybe – maintain white supremacy or mm. white hegemony. Um, books, by, books that glorified um, the role of oh, white Western civilization in conquering right. uh, the world and sort of thing. It, it yeah. went pear-shaped for them because they mm. were trying to find – they're trying to fund a, a, degree, a couple of degrees in Western civilization mm. and um, they went to a couple of Sydney universities and mm. huge backlash from students, from the academics, mm. that it's just mm. not on and um, – uh, but they finally found a home. I'm not sure where, but they, they have found a home mm. and they're going to have their uh, – you can study Western civilization as a degree mm. um, or postgraduate degree mm. uh, there. Uh, but, look, there's none of the books on their list is on my list, but mm. I came very close. Right, okay. <laughs> very close. I'll just make a couple of comments uh, just about fiction and I should read more fiction yeah. because – well, I was looking at this article from Alif Shafak uh, in The Guardian and – I'll just read a, a little extract from the from the article. History has shown that it doesn't start with concentration camps or mass murder mm. or civil war or genocide. It always starts with words, stereotypes, cliches, tropes. The fight against dehumanisation, therefore, also needs to start with words. Stories. It is easier to make sweeping generalisations about others if we know close to nothing about them, if they remain an abstraction. To move forward, we need to reverse the process, start by rehumanizing those who have been dehumanized, and for that we need the art of storytelling. Data and factual information are crucial, but not enough to bring down the walls of numbness and indifference to help us empathize with people outside our tribes. 
We need emotional connections, but more than that, just as we need sisterhood against patriarchy, we need storyhood against bigotry. East or West, when we relate to others, we do so through stories. Literature can be incredibly powerful, universally relevant, and most importantly, a healing force. So for some reason, in my head as I'm reading that, I'm thinking of like um, boat people and how they are stuck in concentration camps on Manus Island or something like that. And you can have all the dry arguments in the world about the ethics and not, but if somebody came out with mm. a story, fictional or whatever, about somebody stuck in a camp like that, it would just have a resonance that would sort of break through Absolutely. With, with, um, with getting people to empathise and place themselves in the situation. And it doesn't have to be entirely factual, but just give you the atmosphere and and the emotion. So, yeah. I, I agree. Um, so much about politics these days, or if you're working in government, it's often about what's the narrative? What's the mm. narrative here? You can't mm. just give people information. They go, yeah. how do I plug this in? You've given me that information, but what box am I putting it in here? Mm. Um, and, yeah, you've got to tell a story, mm. I think, if you want to get your point across. So I think that's it's about rhetoric, but it's about persuasion as well. It's mm. it's very hard to be persuasive when you're not telling a story. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's got to be an accurate story. It's got to be a good story. There's a lot of bad stories out there, mm. you know, but but if you want to get your point across, yeah, the narrative's important. Mm. Yeah. So the books we're dealing with tonight, a lot of them are stories that resonate right now with the upheavals in our society and let's kick off with one. Enough intro. We've been babbling on yeah. for, uh, for a little while. Uh, what are we into this? Uh, um, nine minutes into it and we haven't even discussed the first book. Well, let's, let's start go. now. So, yeah. look, if you're going to have a list of books about books. I, I just can't go past, I think this is the book you would talk about, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray mm-hmm. Bradbury, published in 1953. Um, I think most people know this sort of the, the idea, this is the book that talks about the burning of books. Um, look, it's a, it's a dystopian future uh, story. Yep. Um, uh, Bradbury was uh, both a science fiction writer and a general novel fantasy writer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, leading writer of his era. Uh, the book was written in the McCarthy era as well. Mm-hmm. So he was he was really opposed to what he saw was happening in America at the time. Um, mm. Censorship, the use of mass media, and um, the dumbing down of the public through mm. what was just pulp. It comes up in Orwell's 1984, which we get to later, but that use of pulp to just dumb the masses. Yes. Yeah, it's important. So, look, it's a... Um, it's a beautifully written book. Um, it's one of my favourites. I read it the other night um, as I was putting the list together. I had a, I took a, I had a day off the other day, and uh, I'd sort of looked at it the night before, and then I just kept reading. And I thought, look, it's not a very big. It's no, not very big. It's not that big. It's easy. It's a really, really well written book. Um, mm. Essential plot line is um, that uh, it's in the future. Um, fire, uh, houses are fireproof now. Mm. They don't burn. Mm. Uh, firemen have a job to do, uh, so they've been switched by government. And look, we might have a disagreement about this. I, I think it's a. I think they work for the government. I thought you had read it as they, they work for they, the. They work for the government, but they're, but, they're like but, mil- militia or something. But it's civilian. Not, but it's not so much the government telling people, yeah, to burn the books. The people have accepted mm. that the books have to be burned True. and are dobbing people in. That's right. So as a firefighter, he's um, if he's discovered by. Well, he has trouble with his wife. He discovers he's got the book and it's acknowledged no, right. that if his colleagues find out, whereas in uh, 1984 it's about, well, you're going to be dobbed into Big Brother, mm. I guess. 
The, the atmosphere of this one is, is as much that no, the people right. that, themselves. That's out of, that comes out of fear, except for the children in 1984. Yeah. The children right. are out of control. Right. But, but the adults, I think, know it's wrong. Right. But it's out of fear. Whereas yeah. you're right. No, you're right. The, 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 uh, the firemen don't investigate anything. They just get calls. Yes. People say there's books here. Yes. So their job, their only job is to burn books, yes. uh, which are on a well, long, long lists. Yes. Um, and uh, what happens is the particular hero, uh, the lead figure, Comes a, at one event, is a particular woman decides to she doesn't want to leave the house. She'd rather burn with her books than mm. than live, mm. and that strikes him. That really upsets him. But actually, at the same time, he he started to hide books as well. A mm. um, little bit like the book thief, the recent book, and it's mm. been in a movie. So he starts hiding them, but he doesn't know why. Mm. Yes. So so um, um, an important part of the book is that he meets up with these. Um, he tracks down. This professor, this, and they're all out of jobs. All the professors from Harvard, etc. They're all out of jobs. All the all the literary um, professors. They're all at home <laughs> hoarding books and storing things. Mm. But he catches up with this one fellow and um, Professor Faber, and puts to him that he he just confesses, "I need I need these books." And he says, "No, no, it's not. You don't need the books. You need what's in them." And he makes this. He he sets this uh, statement. It's on page uh, eighty three of my copy. Why why books are helpful, and um, I think it's really important. He mm. says this fictional professor Faber says, firstly, y- what you need is quality information as a citizen. Mm. That's what you need. It doesn't necessarily mean the books on you, but but that's what we're after. And quality again, this is this nature of quality. I think that's really important to me. Um, but you need quality information, and how you're going to get it other than reading? Um, you need leisure time. You need some time to read. Mm. And he says in this particular you know, dystopian future, life's so busy. Everybody's um, reading again. I didn't realise they like Orwell. There are elements of technology there I'd forgotten about. Um, his wife has always got these things in her ears called seashells, mm. but they're like iPods. Yes. They're in her ear. Yes. And she's always listening to this pulp nonsense. Yes. Um, and then the TV room, um, it's actually a room called the parlour, but all four walls are huge screens and – you're in the middle of this conversation going on all the time. Mm. So you don't have any time. The professor says everybody drives fast cars, everybody's yep. running at breakneck speed, things are burning down. Yep. But her connection yeah. into the grid with the seashells yeah. and the television, written in the 1930s. It's fif- this is the 50s. 50s. Yeah. But our sort of, um, you know, addiction to social media and our in our immersion yeah. into that whole being connected, um, very sort of it really, spookily prescient. It really shocked me. Mm. He, he picked that. Mm. I was like, holy dude, because I think I had my, mm. I had my, I, my pods in. <laughs> I was doing it. What am I doing? But, yeah. yeah, I was tuning out. I just put them in and I put them on stuff and I tune out. Mm. And um, mm. well, I think well, one, of your, one of your people said they do it with the podcast itself yes. <laughs> so they can just relax. Yeah. You know, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a really nice oh, – and the third element, obviously, he says you need mm. freedom. Mm. So you need quality information. What books give mm. you is quality information if you're looking for the right book. Mm. But you need to take time to read. And you need also then the freedom in a proper society – need freedom to be able to act on those two things. So if you get mm. good information, which means reading a variety of things, take the time out and you should also have the freedom to act on these ideas and these thoughts to go do mm. something, yeah, mm. and that's what, that's what literature gives you. Mm. So I think that's a, so it's, a, it's, a, 
important book. Yep. Well, this is a very meaningful book yeah. too. And so, it's and it's a small book too. So yes. It won't take very long. Yes. So if you're stuck in Victoria in a shutdown um, yep. and you're thinking of something to read, put that one at the top because it's a quick one. You can knock that one over in in oh, if you're yeah. a fast reader of six hours or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um yeah. so that's first cab off the rank. Yeah. So um, what else have you got? Well, if you want to talk about books, I've got to talk my special topic. I've got to mention the Bible. Yes. Yeah. Um I'm, I'm secular, I'm atheist, uh, but mm. I do have an interest in the history of the Bible. Mm. And um, and it is, well, at least in the Western world, to show my limitations, mm. uh, I'm not saying that to promote the Western culture, but saying that mm. I am very Western in my sort of reading. Mm. Um, it is the most published book, I believe, in the history of West, the Western world. Mm-hmm. Not the most sold, mm. <laughs> not the most well, but most published. I think Harry mm. Potter, a Harry Potter novel is the most sold book, but mm. but. The Bible's been published more than any other book in the history yeah. of the Western world. And so, the most influential. And it's extremely it influential mm. for literature. I mean, so much of our literary heritage, if it doesn't come from the Bible, it comes from Shakespeare. And mm. um, uh, we're talking about one of the uh, books here about the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Grapes of Wrath. Mm. And, yeah, it's got a biblical root. Yeah, you can trace it back. Mm. Um, but I'm not really interested really in the theology um, particularly, but I am interested in the history of it. And I think the to understand the Bible, to understand that book um, as a compilation, what what is it? Mm. I think that's a really, I think it's a really important topic for secular people, people who want mm. to understand what they're dealing with. Mm. Um, and look, I was going to the internet for a long time, trying to work things out, and there's just so much there. So I consulted a, a, a good, uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Gary Miller, who's the um, he's the principal at the Australian uh, Queensland Theological College, mm-hmm. um, an expert. He, well, he and his wife are both um, uh, practice in the area, and he said, uh, "Look, the book. This is his wife found his book. He said, this is the one. He grabbed it off her bookshelf. He said, if you've got to start anywhere, this is where we'd start, and that's mm. a book called The Canon of Scripture by F. F. Bruce. Okay, uh, so this is not fiction. No, right. look, this is not a cracking read. Mm. This is this is dry stuff." Mm. If you're into it, but mm. if you do want to understand the history of the Bible as an actual compilation of letters, and mm. this is the book. And I say, look, this is my experience. Having read that book, I then went back to the internet. Everything sort of fell into place. Mm. Now, F.F. Bruce is a man of faith. He's not, not an atheist, mm. but it's very well written. Mm. He's very evenly balanced. Like um, he's evangelical. Like he's oh. part of the the, the assemblies and, of God, and evenly balanced evangelical. Yeah, well, this this, this is, is why more on. This surely. is the, this is the exception, is that? Mm. But he's fiercely independent and has mm. written a lot of things that don't conform to traditional evangelical sort of views. So, like mm. for example, one of his articles sets out the reasons why the last. You may recall from our discussion about the Bible previously that of all the Gospels, it's believed the Gospel of Mark is the earliest. So mm. I, when I read things, I say we should go to the earliest work yep. first before the latter. You mm. have to understand the order in which they're written. Mm. Uh, one of F.F. Bruce's articles uh, takes you through why the last section of Mark, which is the evidence of the resurrection, wasn't written by Mark. Right. It's written by somebody else. Okay, because so, it's clearly a different style or, exactly. or other. Yeah, so instead of trying to attack that and yep. just, no, 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 it's quite well okay. established. And he said, look, look, Mark ends here. Right. So the, the, the women go to the tomb. Jesus is gone. He's not there. Yep. And they run away and they're scared. So he knows when to concede a point. Yeah, right. I think okay. he's very well balanced. So, look, he's okay. a person of faith, but if you, but if I, I, I would recommend the book. Okay. So if you read this, have you got that one there in front of you? No, oh, I've okay. given it away to how, a friend. How, how thick is it? Oh, uh, it's um, oh, it's about so you know, yay thick. Okay. It's, it's a no, but look, it's a dry read. It's yeah. a dry read. Look, if you want a cracking read, I'll yeah. just hold this one up. 
This is a cracking read. Yeah, yeah the, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Yeah. But look, if you want to know anything about the Bible, <laughs> clearly not that. It's yeah. all wrong. Yeah. That's just a page turner to take <laughs> your mind off. It's a page turner. Off your wife leaving you or something That's like that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, okay. you, you, the first chapter or two, you think, oh, this is pretty corny. And then, then you're like, oh, this is. Yeah. You start yeah. to accept the corniness and off you go. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, that's a great read. Okay. Um, well, uh, but yeah. look, no, that's not on the no, list. I just not... bring that along as a prompt. So, yeah. Yeah. As, a, as a contrast. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yep. Look, I would say I would love to find an equivalent book for the Quran, but I can't – well, so far I can't find it. I, right. I find they're either polemic, anti-sort mm. of Quran, or they're the other – they're just apologetic, accepting everything that's been said without any critical right. – I'm looking for someone who's prepared to say, look, even if they're a person of faith, this is my faith. Mm. But look, you know, of course, that thing, no, nobody mm. – that's not really – that was written by somebody else uh, – this story questionable, blah blah blah. But somebody just says, "Look, these are this is this is how it comes together: the Quran and the other mm. um, canons of the faith." Yeah. Look, I can't find one. I'd love mm. to find one. Um, I suspect maybe it's a difficult topic to write about. Mm. Yeah, which is which is disappointing. Yeah. I would like to know more. I gave you that book that kind of put the Quran and the Was Sunnah it? and the Sirah into sort yeah. of plain oh, English. Uh, a bit too polemic for me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's, yeah. it was too much on the attack, but yeah. I, I'd like to know more about the – I don't need to know mm. about the faith, but I'd just like to be able to understand what people – when they – again, like, you know, when I go to the mm. internet, mm. Oh, I, I know where to put things, I know what yes. people are saying, and look, mm. this book by F.F. F. Bruce really did it for me for mm. my Bible reading. So, mm. yeah, anyway, it's a recommendation, um, and there's a big gap there with the, with the Muslim faith. Mm. Um Actually, I'm going to grab that book from the bookshelf. Sam mentioned it. Hang on. Yeah. You keep talking. Yeah. So one of the good things about the Bible story is the point at which the Bible itself reveals that authors of some of those letters were quite aware that Jesus hadn't come back as soon as Paul said he was going to come back and it was going to take some time because there's a couple of there's a two, two of the epistles in the very end of the New Testament Start saying, oh, he's coming, but hey, hey, in his time, when, what is soon for him is might be a long time for, you know, mere humans. You know, okay, yeah. right, it's going to take a while. So it comes to this question of well, what are we going to do in the meantime? Um, because Paul didn't give you much to live by. He just said the end is coming, get ready. So what did Christians do in the meantime? Well, they, they actually turned to a lot of the um, ethics and values, and we've talked about this before, from Greeks and ancient Latin literature mm. um, because they had a lot to say about how to lead a good life. Mm. It gets back to a topic I think you've discussed before on the podcast about Judeo-Christian f- morals aren't the only morals. It's mm. not like, it's not like take those away, the world was just Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. No, the mm. world is full of people writing principal works. Mm. Um, so that's a, much my segue to the next book, which yep. is... Um, Before you do, yeah. just uh, I quite liked... Uh, these books by Bill Warner, yeah. which was um, in particular uh, the Sirah, which was the biography. And basically he took the Sirah. Um, so we're going back to the Quran here. Yeah. So the, yeah and so, what's the Sirah, so, so though? So what's the, the Sirah, though? So that is the uh, the biography of, yes. of Muhammad. Yeah. So, which is not the Quran. It's no, after the Quran. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But it basically tells a story of his life and what he did and his adventures and stuff. So... And in the and in the sort of canon of Islamic scripture, it's it's as important as the Quran. Yeah, and that's the, that's the bit I struggle with that I'd yeah. like to know more about. But yeah, yeah. So the argument is that Muhammad was perfect, mm-hmm. and so if you um, 
And there's so many conflicting things in the Quran where you could say, oh, the Quran says do this, that's terrible. And yep. then they could pick up another section of the Quran and say, oh, well, there's this contrasting section which says the opposite, so don't worry about that. Whereas in the um, – when you're looking at his biography and and he admits, you know, the story is quite clear that he and, he and his gang of rebels were just – um, attacking car- innocent caravans of people and, and cleaning them up, uh, you, you just go, well, that doesn't look too perfect to me. Yeah. And, and so this book, he's he has basically chopped out all the guff because sometimes if you're reading the original source material, it will refer to Joe Bloggs, son of Bill Bloggs, son of James Bloggs, and that will go on for a page and a half. Yeah, so yeah. he's cut all that sort of stuff out. Yeah. And his translation, he has every paragraph reference to the paragraph in the various versions of the Sirah. So it's very well footnoted. And, and in my mind, um, while it paints a bad picture of Muhammad, it's just recording what's in the yeah. official biography, which... For me, it was a bit polemic, I, but yeah. looking, I, was a good, I so enjoyed he's it. For, yeah. And he's definitely yeah. anti uh, yeah. Islam yeah. and his yeah. foreword and his and these ending conclusions are clearly that. But I think the middle has got some yeah. value to it. So uh, Muhammad and the Unbelievers, Bill Warner, if you're looking for a um, a grip on what's uh, happening in Islam, nice. yeah, good. So I'm go. glad you raised it. Mm. Um, so well, I was trying to segue then to mm-hmm. the um, look. The reason I'm raising the next book is because this is one of those books that fills that gap of how do you lead a good life, mm-hmm. you know, and um, Many Christian writers, uh, particularly I think Thomas Aquinas, referred extensively in his writings. Now Aquinas is in the list of the um, his Summa Theologica for the uh, Ramsey Centre. Um, yes. Aquinas refers extensively to this book, which is uh, called Meditations uh, by Marcus Aurelius. Yep. Um, uh, it's circa one sixty one eighty B AD, a common era. So a Roman emperor. Yep. Um, it's um, and also, uh, one of the books burned in Fahrenheit 451. Mm. Yeah, so I read that the other night and went, oh, there you go, that's yeah. on my list. Yeah. What a lovely connection. Yeah. Um, so uh, now the, that's the, the – I just wanted to establish that that's the connection to, to Christianity, which is that mm. the particular kind of philosophy in this book is called Stoicism. It had been around for a long time, but mm. Stoicism is one of the things they used to fill the gap about how do you live a – a good life. Yes. And um, so a little bit about Stoicism. Stoicism is supposed to be just a, a path to happiness found by accepting the moment as it is, mm. you know, as things present themselves. Um, it's a little bit platonic in the sense of it don't let emotions govern how you act, use logic and reasons. Mm. But, like, if you wanted to re- look up, uh, it was Marcus Aurelius platonic, uh, what's the you, you, you'll find endless PhD. Theses written on this topic. It's it's a heavy duty topic. So uh, I think he, he, Stoicism really stands alone. So that's although there are his writings on his view of life and Stoicism. Yeah, well, he, right. well it's said so to again, be. So again, it's not a fictional work. No, it's a philosophical work. Yeah, yep, it's yep. said to be uh, his private journal when he was in camp on the Danube or the Rhine during military campaigns. It's right. just a collection of his thoughts. Right. So it's a private journal. Yep. Um, so a little bit about the book. That's how it should be read. It, look, it's not a book that has the thoughts all organised into categories and chapters. It, it, you, you, if you read, you wouldn't sit down and read it from scratch, from chapter one. It is a book that you're meant to pick up, and I certainly do this. I did it the other day. I sort of got up 
got up early. Uh, it was a couple of mornings ago. One of the mornings, it was wasn't cold at all. It was quite warm, and there's a little bit of rain. And I went out on the deck, and birds read were chirping. A bit of Marcus and, Aurelius. and then I went, well, I'm going to go read. It. So, and I, and, and um, you know, it's, it's the thing. You just pick it up, and I turned to book two, right. so uh, first verse, and it just says, um, "Begin each day by telling yourself, today I shall be meeting with interference, ingratitude, and ins- insolence." disloyalty, ill will and selfishness, right. all of them due to the offender's ignorance of what is good or evil. But he goes on to say, but look, m- my role is to s- stand above all that, be right. graceful, don't, mm. don't attack them for their ignorance, work with them. You mm. know, it's like, like two hands working together or, or, or teeth mm. in two jaws working together. We're all on this earth together. So mm. Stoicism has this kind of life is what it is, make the best of it. Yep. It's, if, if, if I was part yeah. of the 1% and I was wanting to control the masses, I'd like them all to be Stoics. <laughs> yes, that's right. So Stoics, Stoicism has its criticisms. Accept your fate, my my. It has its criticisms. It yeah. has its criticisms that mm. it's not into change. Mm. Um, it is possibly, I think Bertrand Russell's great criticism of it was that it sort of tends to kind of even a sour grapes view of the world, which is, look, life isn't really good. Yeah. So why don't we just make out that it's all okay yeah. and we'll just accept it. So yeah. it's not really a force for change. Yeah, it's a kind of it's acceptance of suffering to some extent. But for a lot yeah. of people, the thing is, you know, that search for change can be unfulfilling as well. So mm. it, it provides that little bit of, and maybe it's for the older reader, mm. um, there's quite a lot about dying in it he's, and things he's like given that. up on life. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm changing the world. So, um, um, but, uh, but the thing is um, it's... Very popular. I think it's said to be Bill Clinton's favourite book. Yeah. Now, whether that's the kind of thing he'd say just because you want to seem educated, I don't right. know. Uh, but um, quite a few of the American generals, one particular general, I can't remember his name, but it's his sort of. Okay, this isn't selling it for me. No. Bill Clinton and American generals is not selling it for yeah. me. But that I think that's an important book for me. Mm. And look, I, just okay. to give you any, just to give you another example, I think the this is a um, uh, it's book, in book eight. This is a this is a paragraph that's really, really important to me. Um, mm. It's said to be uh, Douglas Mawson, the Australian explorer, when he was in Antarctica, mm. um, he said, also said to have this book with him. And it was with him when he was on his famous journey back to base camp trying to save his life. Oh, but the stoicism would be very handy. At, yeah, at that's that right. Mm. And the particular quote that keeps coming up is this one here in Book 8. If you were distressed by anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself but to your own estimate of it. And this you have the power to revoke at any moment. Mm. And I, that's really powerful for me. Mm. Yeah, I think, and it's really important to me as well, that mm. line. Um, you know, Mawson, Mawson was like five days from base camp with, they'd lost all their food. One of their, mm. one of their men had died falling down a crevasse. They had to, and the extreme conditions, extreme conditions through, mm. through ice and blizzards. He had to, um, they had to eat the dogs on the way back. Every night they had to kill a dog and eat it, and um, mm-hmm. and and, but he was said to have such a powerful will that he, the reason he had to get back is because the um, the last ship was leaving the harbour before it froze over mm-hmm. because you can't survive the winter, so they had to go. Yep, he had a deadline. Mm-hmm. When he got back, and he's on his own because the other guy, second guy, died on the way as well. When he mm-hmm. got back, um, the ship had gone, but he could see smoke still at Mawson's hut. Right. Two of his men had decided to stay behind, ah. and they said Mawson will return. Right. 
Wow. Yeah, and something tells me yeah. that that kind of mm. the sort of strength of character also comes down that because this is a book he carried with him as well. Right. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, you know, mm. I, I like it. Mm. And, but look, it's again, it's not a it's not a ripping yarn. Yeah. It's a it's more meditative than yeah. something for quite night. Um, side note: I think the president of the Rationalist Society, Meredith Doig, is a bit of a stoic. She's into oh, this. Uh, yeah, her, there you she's go. into stoicism, yeah. and um, if you're into philosophy and wanting to understand the different schools of philosophical thought, I'll chip in with some books. Uh, Ken and Malik, The Quest for a Moral Compass, um, really. Oh, uh, there we go. I'm going to write that down. Yep. Yeah. Um, he goes through the various philosophical schools of thought from the early Greeks um, all the way through to modern day. Um, really well written, easily accessible run through. I like it because that is a really tough topic. It, it is tough. tough. And here's, here's why I recommend it because at the same time I had Bertrand Russell, History of Western Philosophy. Yes. And I tried to read that and I was just going, oh, this is too hard. I think that's the book in which Bertrand Russell Right. As the criticism of Celsius. Yeah. But after reading Ken and Malik, A Quest for a Moral Compass, I had enough of a framework yep. of understanding the a good overview of them that when I got into the weeds with Bertrand Russell, I could keep going. So it was a really – Sounds dual- similar to my point mm. about F.F. Bruce. I want, there are some books when you read them, you go, oh, now I, now I can put things in their place and I yes. know what they're saying. So yeah. that's a good tip, Drew. I'll yeah. write that one down. So, um, so there we go. And the oh, Bertrand Russell one is History of Western yeah. Philosophy. So, so moving on to another topic. This is mm. – so that was – we've done, we've done b- books itself, burning books, mm. um, religion um, – Ethics, a uh, little, little bit of philosophy. So here's mm. my pick: mm. um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance mm-hmm. um, uh, by Robert Persig, uh, published in 1974. Um, uh, uh, Persig, a Swede, raised in Britain, educated in the United States, and resided in the United States. I think eventually went back to Sweden as well. Um, look, only wrote two books. This is one of them. Um, is, is he dead now? Yeah, he died. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we'll get to that. I've got some concessions to make on. Right. Not everybody here is a dead author. Not right. yet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but um, look, this book, it's said to be the most read or published book now on philosophy in the modern era. Right. That's what it's said to be. Yeah. Yep. Um, and um, Sorry, what year was it published? Uh, published in 74. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it is, as a book, look, it's, it's a novel – and a treatise wrapped in together. So right. it's a narrator who is telling a story, which is a true story about his, like a road trip with his son and some friends on motorbikes across America. Um, and through the story, through the novel, he takes a moment to, uh, to talk about philosophy through this idea called the Chautauqua. And the Chautauqua is an American term. Um, it used to be... It was a movement uh, in the 1800s, sort of petered out maybe by the time of the Great Depression, but it was a very significant movement in America, which was these travelling shows where instead of take the blues fest, take the music out of it and put in um, uh, uh, education, literature, philosophy, new ideas, a little bit of music, a little bit of that, um, sort of quite contrasted with vaudeville, which is the, you know, the travelling circus or the tent show. Chautauquas were this sort of event, social event, free, where people came together to hear someone mm. speak on philosophy, literature, new ideas. Mm. Uh, it, was a very American, it was a very American thing. I think there's a quote that said uh, Teddy, Ro- uh, Teddy Roosevelt, 
the president at the time, mm. was a big fan of them and said that Chautauquas are one of the most American things there are in our society. And I, mm. I sort of I sort of wonder when I'm reading that, I was thinking, is the, is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove a bit of a... A Chautauqua. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Chautauqua yes. comes from Lake Chautauqua. I think that's mm. where it started. The particular movement in the state of New York, there's a Lake Chautauqua and I think it started there and, and has its permanent home there. There's a Chautauqua Institute, yep. which I think is based on the lake. Yeah. Yep. So, so through these these educational lectures, he puts forward this view and that's really what the book's sort of famous for. Mm. Um, uh, it's this theory of a new way of looking at aesthetics or the appreciation of beauty in our society. So the, the, look, a little bit about how, the how does the motorcycle come into it? Well, it, it, there's Zen. Zen is like the emotion. Mm. Motorcycles are the example of how these uh, these two sort of the, the, the emotional world and the classical world sort of come together, but also clash. I'll, I'll, I'll explain that. Okay. He does say at the very beginning, not a lot, nothing about Zen really in the book, and not not very accurate motorcycle maintenance either. So, oh. so it's a play on words. Yeah, right. I think there was another book. Uh, there's another book which was written, which has a similar kind of catchy title. Right. So okay. he stole it. But, um, right. So he used a title that doesn't really reflect it no. in the content. Oh, no, it is about a road trip on a motorcycle. So, okay. You know, so right. That, you know, okay. And, he, and he does do some maintenance along the way. Right. But it's not really about Zen. It's about something else. Right. <laughs> so, right. So here's, the, here's a little bit about the, the theory. Um, uh, and, look, the, the thing people say about this book is that this book delivers something I think we need in modern society. And, it, and it's this idea. So he takes us back to Plato and the idea that Plato divided thoughts into ra- rational thoughts and emotional thoughts and he promoted rational thoughts. You know, emotions can be sort of misleading. Rationalism mm. was more important. Um, and that's a really – look, these platonic theories have really influenced society or the society, Western society in particular um, – it comes right through to today. Today it's said to be the foundation for our sort of fundamental assessment of objectivity and subjectivity. And when we try to resolve problems, we often ask ourselves, well, look, is this a problem that needs to be objectively determined mm. or is it a matter for the individual? So your topic the other night mm. about the – it was the Martina Navratilova story about mm. where, you know, she's, she's a gay athlete who's had to fight for her sort of rights, but now she's coming up in front of the uh, – it's the – Male elite athletes or, or people who born with male sexual sex, yep. male sex, but want to transition to being a woman, but competing as a woman as well, mm. and whether that's fair or equitable or mm. right or just, and you know those questions come up. Look, do we deal with this objectively? Is it mm. subjective? Is it how the individual feels? Is it about how the other athletes, the other female athletes, feel? Is it fair to them? Or so this mm. idea about whether whether we rationalise objectively and subjectively said mm. to go back to Plato. Look, along the way um, uh, came the Industrial Revolution and with the Industrial Revolution came the movement of Romanticism. And Romanticism is very, very strong in Western culture as well. It's this, And Romanticism promotes individuality, emotional mm. feelings mm. Um, uh, and, and the idea that the industrial world was, was advancing society but it was ugly. Yes. Had no beauty in it. Yes. And so the roma- the romantics, as opposed to the classicists who went back to um, ancient Greek and Rome, mm. the romantics were going back to like the Middle Ages, you know, so like tales of King Arthur and Honor knights and, and beauty. And, yeah, mm. so like Cervantes with Don Quixote and mm. those sort of, you know, 
being an honourable knight and very romantic sort of notions, um, mysticism, gothicism and that sort of, those mm. sort of ideas. So he says, in his view, we've still got those today and the idea of the motorcycle as the example of where it clashes is that some people look at a car or a motorbike and they look, it's beautiful and they like the look of it. Mm-hmm. But there are also people who they they just want to take it to the shop and get it repaired. They don't want to know anything about how it works. Mm-hmm. Whereas he's a classical guy and he wants to know how the machine works, but he actually sees beauty in, you know, he says like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is an example in the book, but I think it is an example that every one of those bolts that's in the motorcycle, like somebody had to design that. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to take the time to, you know, the slope of the thread is mm-hmm. a science in itself, somebody's, and as we know from things like, you know, space shuttle disasters and things like that, mm. you use the wrong component, put the wrong bolt in here or, or there, you just borrow one from another set thing, it'll be okay. Mm. You know, things crash, things burn, that sort of stuff. But his view was that the classic, there's beauty in the classical world with the symmetry and the perfection and that sort of stuff. But the mm. romantics, well, he, he relates it to this people who are scared of technology, you know, people who won't engage in, like there's something wrong with their computer. I, they don't want to know how to fix it. Right. They won't even take the time to say, is it the cable or break it down? And it's so he saw that as a failure on their part or they were missing out well, because they being, were not they're engaging. They're by their emotions and they're not right. engaging the, their rational thought. And there's people right. who have rational thoughts that are not seeing the beauty in the world. So right. he thinks that there's a lot of, and this is his point, is that in the modern society we need more of this. We, mm. we, we, this division between the two. He thinks you can bring it together with this simple idea of quality, that mm. both, both, both schools of thought have quality about them and that's the thing that binds them at the top. So it's like a, the horns mm. of the dilemma are caught between the two. You go to this theory above it and it's, well, it's called the metaphysics of quality. Look, at that stage it gets to a point where I get a bit bored with it but mm. I sort of move on. But right. This book is said to be the most popular book on philosophy in the modern sort of era. So, I mean, there's a know. certain beauty in function and form, but yeah, then there's exactly. also people who are maybe just busy with other things mm-hmm. and so they don't care about the function of the motorbike because oh, their he, he minds are He goes further and said that things. they actually fear technology. Right. Yeah, they're scared yeah. of it. It's that kind of, um, you know, right. if something – people worry when things break and right. it's just like, well, things do break. Right. And you get them fixed. Yeah. You know, yeah. like washers wear out. Don't panic mm-hmm. about it. Just – Go to the hut, get call someone to get it done. But there are mm. people who worry a lot about technology. And okay. Like they, if they don't, don't touch it. Don't touch it. It works properly. Don't touch it. And they don't engage with it. Right. And they're almost like feel, he thinks they're fearful of technology in a modern age where we're so reliant on that. So he was a get yeah. in and get your hands dirty kind of guy. Yeah. And see the beauty of like the, you know, you're driving this motorbike. Mm. How many hundreds of that people work? The, the technology has been worked on over decades and decades and you mm. know, what a privilege to ride this sort of thing. Mm. Other people go, I've just, well, his friend who's riding this very expensive BMW, he thinks because it's BMW it should just work perfectly and if it doesn't work, you just give it to somebody and they fix it and I don't yep. want to know about it. And yeah. uh, he says, don't you want to know? <laughs> Look at all these great See, things. okay, I'm going to push back Yeah, because I'm not a car guy yeah, at all. Yeah. I just don't care about cars and – I think it was part of my upbringing or whatever. Um, my father never had a driver's license. Yeah. So my mother used to drive, but my dad never drove. It was quite an unusual thing. And um, and he was never really a guy who tinkered with mechanical things yeah. that and much. Neither was I. Um, so I've just never grown up. But in that sort of environment. Had I had a father who was a mechanic or something, I, I might well have had an interest in pulling things apart and putting them back together again. But... Um, I don't know. I just sort of have 
I can I can say people could have um, an interest in just there's so many things you could be interested in that you could be forgiven for having no interest in mechanical things if you have an interest in other things. It's not so, mechanical, but that's right. the the demonstration right. of through yeah. mechanics and things like that. Yeah. But look, I look around at all these wires and cables here yeah. and I think, well, you, I wouldn't yeah. be able to do all this, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you have other priorities. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But, okay. um, but I'm not fearful of it either, but I think there are people who are. Look, okay. it really resonated with me. Okay. I, I read it. It's on the list. Okay. But, uh, I, I, but, you know. Of the ones you've described so far, I'm putting that one down on, towards the bottom, but that's oh, all right. Okay. This that's, is all a matter of this is a sorting yeah. thing happening here. Anyway, so look, the next topic might be we're going to get onto war, politics and, yep. and other things, so got to talk about love. There's yes. a little bit of, it's a little bit Orwellian as well, the whole sort of, you know, yeah. love, department of love, department of yeah, feelings, those sort of things. But um, um, maybe to disclose my uh, again my, my my background and look, it's all I've gone with Victorian novels uh, from the Victorian era. Era um, first one, Wuthering Heights. I um, look in terms of books that are well written. Um, when I read this book, this is my old copy of it. It's a weather beaten sort of secondhand one. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I read this book, when I finished it, I I put it down. I said to my wife, "That's just." That's just damn good writing. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of how well the book is written, mm-hmm. it's a pleasure to read. I really enjoyed. It. It's got structural elements. If you if you really like reading and you're sort of a connoisseur of that, it's it's got structural elements which are really just so well written. I just thought, God damn it, it's just a damn good ba- book. Ba- basic storyline yeah. without giving away uh, the yeah, um, yeah, without yeah. giving away you know any yeah. uh, well, endings. Um, well, firstly, uh, uh, a bit about the author. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Emily Bronte. Um, Published under the name Ellis Spell because they there was a bit of an issue with female authors back in the Victorian era. So yeah, oh. pu- published under a, a sort of ambiguous non-deplume, Ellis Spell. Mm, okay, mm. whether that's male or female, we don't know. Um, it's also her only novel. Right. Published in eighteen forty-seven, she died in eighteen forty-eight. It's a while ago now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Eighteen forty-seven. Wow. Yeah. So um, getting up to two hundred years. Yeah. So, so look, it's a story set in the Yorkshire Moors. Mm. Um, which, which really means the middle of nowhere. I think in, in, in British terms, you know, it's the, it's the middle of nowhere, you know, mm. but, but in a beautiful part of the world um, uh, for us these days. Um, it's the intersection of two families, the Earnshaws, who, who their estate is Wuthering Heights, which is this sort of a mansion on the top of this hill, and it's Wuthering because the winds are ferocious and it, uh, the trees are all bent and it's, but it stands as this sort of castle on a hill. Right. Um, and the Linton family, who are at a different house, Thrush Cross Grange, which is down down a bit lower, and the intersection of one of the children of the Earnshaw family, Catherine or Cathy, and um, an orphan brought back into the into the um, Earnshaw family, uh, Heathcliff, a young orphan uh, taken from Liverpool, I think, and, mm-hmm. and made a home. Um, look, two two terrible people. The two characters. These are not nice people. Heathcliff and, and Kathy, they're awful people. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really are. Good. But there's this Good. relationship between the two. There's this love-hate thing that goes on and wrecks all these other lives along the way. Right. Um, I won't give away whether it's a happy or a sad ending. Okay. okay but So but, the middle's at least quite grim and ugly. Oh, um, look, the when it was published, mm. there are many people who were shocked. Uh, uh, Gabrielle Rossetti um, a uh, famous English poet and uh, painter, um, admired the book but said it was a fiend of a book. Right. A fiend of a book, an incredible monster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you read it today, it's not that bad. But yep. 
in those days, these are days where you you, yeah. you, you always had to allude to sexual relations. You didn't right. actually say, you just yeah. would allude to. Yeah. that The fact that someone would, would offer to marry and then withdraw the, the offer, unheard of. You, you right. certainly see you go out and shoot yourself. You can't right. heck it. Yeah. The, the standards of morality were, were different, but today it's not shocking. But right. for, its, for its time, okay. it was a, a, a incredible book. Um, the Examiner, which is that was a leading a leading journal at the time for academic and, and radical thought and things like that, um, said this is a strange book. Um, it, is, uh, it is not without evidence of considerable power, but as a whole it is wild, confused, disjointed and improbable. The people who make up the drama, which is tragic enough in its consequences, are savages ruder than those who lived in the days before Homer. Um, so it had a huge impact, the book. Mm. It's bloody well written, right. I say. It's got okay. it's got literary devices, which is lapses in time and taking you back in time and bringing back to the future and things like that. And it's got two – it's got this – well, depending how you think of Gothic literature, but it's got these two moments, Gothic moments in it, which were really quite – they grabbed me. I, mm-hmm. they, shot, they sort of surprised me. Yep. They came out of nowhere and really hit me hard and I – just really enjoyed the book. Okay. So, so if I had to pick a book on a romance one, that's my I, I, top. You've sold me on that one, yeah. Wuthering Heights, and it's yeah. not a big one. No, and, it's not a big one either. Get, you could get through that one pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think, really, that, I think it's a great You've book. sold me on that one. I'm definitely going to give that a go. Yeah. So, now, so the other end, another one just, is um, – just, just to interrupt, when it comes to fiction, yeah. well, non-fiction I have to buy the hardcover book. Well, well, the soft, I have to have the physical book because yes, I'm too. highlighting and I'm writing on it. But when it's a novel, then I don't need to do that. And I just find a Kindle really easy to read oh. in a bed at night time. Because I like um, to have a copy of – I would I, like to have a copy of every book mm, I've ever read. I, I yep. can't do that. I've had to get rid of mm. a few. But no, I like to have a mm. – I like to have the book. So I'll donate some money to Jeff Bezos and actually download <laughs> Wuthering Heights. There you go. And, you do it that way. And read it. Well, here's another one you can download. Okay. So yep. um, if I had to pick another one um, – I'd go with uh, Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, Hardy's books were burned in Fahrenheit 451 as well. I, right. I, I ticked that off and oh, there yep. you go, another book on my list. Yep. Um, uh, Hardy's first novel and, and his, first, his first major success. So, um, um, and I, I think it still remains, if you had to look up, if you look up Hardy, um, it's his most popular novel and it's the most recently made into a couple, it's been made into films a couple of times. Um, look, it's a simple love story between um, Bathsheba Everdeen. Now, Bathsheba, that's a biblical mm. She's the wife of King David, I think, the mother of Solomon, mm-hmm. so it comes from the Bible. Um, and now she's the female inheritor of an estate and that was an issue in those times, she, a woman trying to stand on her own two feet. Sorry, what year was this book? Oh, it published in 1874, right. in the latter part of the Yeah, so 150 yeah. years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this love story between her um, and uh, Gabrielle Oak, Gabrielle, another biblical name, mm-hmm. um, th- simply the faithful faithful shepherd on a neighbouring farm. Right. But a good man. Right. But it's the twist, uh, typical of Hardy and, and other uh, novels like Dickens at the time, lots of twists and turns, lots of right. heart-rending moments. I must say, Hardy... Closely brings me to tears. I, he's such a passionate writer. I really right. would recommend him. Th- though, if you want to start with Hardy, you would read this one. Yeah. Because, look, I don't want to give it away, but I'll just say that all his other books have very sad endings. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 uh, uh, so, so, you know, the the other books like the, his masterpiece, I think, is people agree it's the Mirror Caster Bridge, but it's a very sad story. Right. Uh, Jude the Obscure is worse. 
Um, um, maybe the, the uh, I haven't read the um, the native return of the native. I haven't read that. Um, mm. It's said to be one for the purists. It's really a bit more, uh, yeah, like it's not as good a read, mm-hmm. but if you're into Hardy, you'd like it. But Mayor of Casterbridge and Tess, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, due to the skewer. Okay, They're so, just all really sad. So whereas Wuthering Heights had some ugly characters doing some awful things, yep. Far From the Madding Crowd has got some more likeable characters yep, who have... Unfortunate mishaps or, yeah, or unfortunate people, people sort of say that, uh, circumstances. Unlike, say, Charles Dickens, where, right. look, every – may not be right about this, but I think mm. every Dickens story has a happy ending. Right. Okay. You know, there's lots of characters. There's bad characters, good right. characters, but it always has happy ending. Okay, I yeah. love a yeah. grim, sad, awful ending in movies, and that's why well, – Hardy, Hardy is yeah. for you. Okay. Oh, God. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I just um, – all right. Like even reading this book, I'm like, oh, my God, why won't you just marry him? Like, come right. on. He's <laughs> such a good man. Um, but, look, that's the one you'd start with. Okay. And, um, and the fact that his books are burned in Fahrenheit 451 is another good good right. um, recommendation there. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, that's a tick for it. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, look, segue to war. Mm. So now it's war, economics and politics. Yeah. And um, uh, one thing I'd say about that topic is that actually can we just interrupt yeah. with some comments? So um, let me just see here um, from um, Karen talking. I think about um, yeah about Persig. So that was uh, Zen yes. and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Karen said, "I found Persig's book inter- intolerably boring. It was my ex's favourite book. It bored me to tears and dripped with wankery." <laughs> <gasps> So that was Karen's. There you go. Uh, and, uh, um, but um, but her partner, her boyfriend's uh, favourite book. Well, her ex. Her ex. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. See, can, people can fifty fifty. Was that Karen? Was that what did it? Was the uh, was was that book? And um, who am I? London says I've not read the art of. Um, However, the ball chat makes a very interesting sell for it. The fear of technology of things breaking. I think I have that with my car and avoid it as much as possible. I think I'll read the book to confront this head on. So there we go. Good. So We've achieved something. We have there. Wow. Yeah. So, and Karen again says, this is going back to Hardy saying, I feel like Jude the Obscure, while tragic, is the better. If you love grim endings, go with Jude. I, I would agree with that. If you like a grim ending, yep. um, it's right up there with, um, yeah, it, look, it is sad. It, mm. it, is, it is a tough read. For me it was a tough read because it's so, I find, I found far from the Madden crowd, Brings me to tears almost. Mm-hmm. And Mira Casterbridge was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, Tess of the, but I'd seen the movie Tess of the Durbervilles, the movie in um, Roman Polanski, I think, Natasha Kinsky. And I'd seen that okay. before I read the book. Right. So I sort of was, you know, I knew what was coming, but the book mm-hmm. is heartbreaking. Okay. But, but Jude the Obscure is the hardest one. Okay. So, if you, so that's the one for you, Trevor. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. All right, next up. Yeah. So um, I was just saying the intro to war is that um, coming out of the romantic view is that. I've read a few articles along the way preparing the list and kept coming across this idea that in this sort of modern and modern world, we're, we're in like a post-tragic world. Like nobody wants the sad endings. Everybody wants happy endings in books. Yeah. Right. So there's this article that was saying that if you go, the librarians in London say that people keep uh, taking out Dickens but Hardy's been on the decline over time. Okay, because they want the good ending. Just want the good ending. Well, what yeah. they do with with um, movies now is 
is they'll shoot two endings yeah. and they'll screen test it with, with <laughs> unfortunately, out. a crowd of Americans oh. and they'll say, which one do you prefer? And they always go for the happy ending. So that's you know, often the actors don't know what the ending's going to be or whatever and, um, yeah. and they end up always going with the happy ending because um, a bunch of, of uh, silly Americans, that's what they want. So that's what we end up with. Well, there's so, that, um, yeah. one of my favourite movies. Uh, Robert Redford movies mm. is the natural, you know, about the yeah, baseball yeah, player. Yeah, 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 yeah. The book. Yeah. You know the ending in the book? No. It strikes out. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, that would be a great example of it. But so in the movie, he hits a home run, it hits the the, the floodlights. It's like the showering sparks. Kids are just. Is, yeah. is that right? Yeah. In the book, he, he strikes out. He strikes out. Wow. Yeah. Oh, the author would be furious. As a, well, as a reader do. of that book. <laughs> You would be furious. It's what you've got to do. It's what you've got to do. And, and there's that um, great, um, oh, it, um, is it Tim Robbins, the American actor, uh, the player or whatever? It's, that, it's one of those movies about um, he's a film producer and uh, um, uh, these guys, it's, the movie starts off with these guys coming to make a pitch about a movie and one right. thing they say is no happy endings, God damn it. In the end she dies in the electric chair and that's why it's <laughs> got to be. <laughs> The very end of the movie, uh, I think he goes through this period where he goes mad and life turns out really bad for it, but at the end of the movie you see it's the premiere of the movie and the the guys who wrote the book are there and I think it's Julia Roberts. No, no, no big stars either. Oh, right. It's Julia Roberts in the electric chair and Bruce Willis kicks in the door and saves her <laughs> at the last minute and she says, what took you so long? You went, stuck in traffic, babe. And it's just – and they and, but the thing is that the writer's like, yeah, it's a success <laughs> because they – somewhere along the line they oh, go. they up, sold out. They sold out. Oh, <laughs> right, okay. They sold out. Okay. They've got the, pl- the player, I think. Okay. Yeah, but again, That's interesting about yeah. the natural. There you go. The, mm. Yeah, so – some people mm. seem to think we're in this sad endings are not mm. right. Anyway, well, mm. you know, sad endings, I think it takes you to the topic of war because there are no happy endings. Okay, war. before you get to mm. that, just briefly, if you want a sad ending in a film, you have to watch a foreign film in the sense of like something European now. Go. Like there they'll give you something um, grim and dark. Yep. That's where And all Aussie you end movies up. Aussie mm. movies have happy endings too. Yeah. So anyway, uh, sorry. So, yeah, war. so look, mm. war, you know, there's no happy endings in war. Mm. So, look, I, I've, done, I've actually, this is a hard one for me because I've, I read a lot of military history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, my special topic is Australians in the Pacific. You know, right? Uh, yeah. So that, that's my thing. Air Kokoda, um, Vietnam, Long Tan. Right. Yeah, I read a great book about Long Tan the other day. Uh, but look, if I had to pick a book, it was a book that was recommended to me by a friend. Um, uh, it bought it for me, and as I, oh, but look, he's read it. It's one of his favourite books. Yep. So it's a motivator. Ed Diva. Oh, so, so yeah, so Ed lives uh-huh. in Southeast Asia. Yep. You know, he's got a connection. He reads a lot about you know. Uh, Southeast Asian, he said, "This is the book to read because I, I think I was, I was reading a bit about Vietnam. And he went, this is the one to read. Oh, okay, and it's look, um, it's big. Mm. It's really is. Yeah. But this is uh, not fiction. This is uh, uh, this is uh, this is history. Yep. Yeah, this is history. Mm. Um, but the title is A Bright Shining Lie. It's written by Neil Sheehan. Neil Sheehan is the award-winning uh, journalist for the New York Times." Uh, most famous for breaking the Pentagon Papers. Right. Uh, the Pentagon Papers was a set of papers prepared uh, by, by the Defence Secretary, Robert McNamara, who'd been the Defence Secretary under LBJ, uh, no, under Kennedy. Kennedy, LBJ, and um, he uh, he put, he for some reason, well, he definitely changed his mind about the war and had great regrets. He, he's one of the few who actually started mm. saying, this is actually, I was wrong. Yep. I I feel bad for 
I think I've misled people. I want to do the right thing. So commissioned this internal report which set it all out. Right. Including how the American government had not told the truth to the American right. people. Yeah. Yeah. But it was an internal analysis. Yeah. Not meant for publication. Yeah. One of the mm-hmm. journalists who's referred to in this book is the guy who leaked it. And this has got this connection with the kind of, you know, current thing, Assange and all mm-hmm. those kind of when, when do you you know, the leakers back in these days, of course, the, the government chased them on sort of stuff, but the leakers in these days were heroes. Was, yes. Um, you know, um, you worry about that now. There's that trial in yeah. Canberra going on for that. Uh, even the lawyer in Canberra is being charged with Yeah, Bernard Collery. Yeah, yeah, really tough stuff. Um, so uh, Sheehan broke the story of the Pentagon Papers and it's the subject of a recent, it's been a subject of a number of movies, but the most recent one I think is called The Post. It's mm. got... Uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks in it. Not a bad movie, actually. Mm. Yeah. That's a story about the Washington Post, which was the second newspaper to run the story after the New York Times had been injuncted. Mm-hmm. They then ran it. Right. And they went to court and they got off. They went to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, Sheehan, though, re- uh, wrote this book about his experiences in Vietnam. He'd been there um, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for it. Right. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it is a famous book. And So his experience as a journalist. He was a journalist right. in Vietnam. And was he... He wasn't embedded. They didn't have those things. Then, oh, no, they no. were there. Yeah, oh. he was on the ground. Okay. Yeah, he was on the ground. With troops. Yep. yep. And bullets flying around. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he knows his stuff. Right. Yeah. And as the right. size of the book demonstrates, he really he knows his stuff. So, right. look, it is, it's also a story about a particular commander as well. Right. Um, 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 uh, Robert Van, I forget his name. Yeah, so, um, oh, John Paul Van. John Paul Van was an right. American colonel. Um, really was the bright, shining person amongst the Americans there, mm. but it's a sort of a tale of not just the lie of the American government or the lies of the American government during the war, but also one of the bright, shining lies was Van himself, the the guy who was the most popular of all the American sort of military men and the men that people like Sheehan had a lot of faith in. Mm. He was a flawed character as well and its story, it goes back into his upbringing in the southern states and a really, really difficult Life, right? Yeah, really, really difficult life, and he was—he was the bright, shining one amongst the Americans, the most enlightened, and yeah, he best was, of a bad bunch. Yeah, and he was and, pretty bad himself. And as it turns out, he's a deeply flawed individual as well, right? And it's a story of—it's um, a personal story of him, but it's right. also a personal story of Vietnam, right? And, and it's a damn good book, and it's well written, and so. And the thing is, it it reveals so much. I mean, you might you asked me a question about it before some time ago about. Oh, like, but is it is it sort of you know is it damning of the um, you know the North Vietnamese or Ho Chi Minh? And it's like no, it's an indictment on the South Vietnamese government, the Saigonese, mm. the Saigonese who hated the local population, mm. didn't care for them, mm. corrupt, and the the corruption starts at the beginning of the book, and then you think how worse can this get? It just keeps getting worse. Mm. And also the corruption of the American military and, and the reason why, because it's a story about modern warfare, I suppose that's why I've gone with it instead of a whole range of other good reads that you could have about, you know, famous battles that Australians have been in. But, um, yeah, it's an indictment of the American military and large-scale military forces where they're run by generals who, well, according to Sheehan, it's a compelling story that really all they're focused on is the next star. Right. And nothing to do, not and even Van himself. You know, and they don't care about the sending young men off to a yeah. certain death or a yep. near certain death. And so, yeah. is he talking about 
So basically, does that book give you sort of an overview at the strategic political level? Or it gives you, and, I think, and gives you everything you on the ground. Yeah. Soldier getting shot at, exactly. On the stupid. Yep, he was on the ground in places. Rice paddy somewhere. Yep. And it where takes just, you. It yeah. takes you through the whole. It, it mm. stops when. Um, it stops at the end of Van's life. Right. It's no secret. Yep. The, chapter one is this funeral. So he he died during the yep. war. Um, he died just after the uh, sort of the Tet Offensive had started. Mm. But um, according to him, and I think this is right that. Um, Westmoreland, the leading American general, had been telling government and government had been telling the people that we're winning. Mm. We've almost we've reached the tipping point because he, jungle warfare is so difficult. In Vietnam War, a difficult battle to understand because it's a, it's a very long, elongated country mm. with, with, a, with only a single front between north and south, a very small area. Mm. But, all, but um, well, there's a point in Cambodia where the Cambodian border is only like it's only like thirty miles from Saigon, right? And yep. the Ho Chi Minh Trail initially yep. stopped at the at Laos, at the above Laos, where close to um, Khaesan. Uh, but with the Khmer Rouge taking control of Cambodia, the the North Vietnamese started to infiltrate, and, and mm. they could come right down to Saigon. So, mm. um, you know, uh, and they drove tanks down these trails as well, and things mm. like that. So it takes you right up to the Tet Offensive. When the Tet Offensive broke out, it, it gave a lie to. Well, America's not winning this war. Mm. We're not winning this war. So, mm. so look, if you had to read a book, uh, a recommended book about modern warfare, um, yeah, Bright Shining Lie. I was amazed by it. It was a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An eye-opener on you came into it thinking was a tragic waste of life and uh, it made it worse. came out of it going, <laughs> worse. I can't believe how, um, I yeah. can't believe, I can't believe how bad it was mm. in that war. Mm. You know? And I've read quite a bit that, you know, people saying, oh, the Americans were winning, we were winning, if only it wasn't for the media and public opinion. Mm. And this book makes it very clear. Yep. It was doomed mm. failure and just the Americans just wouldn't admit it mm-hmm. because they had this belief that they're invincible mm-hmm. and they're prepared to sacrifice their own people to keep that myth alive. Mm. And there's like 40,000 Americans or something. I can't remember the name, but more, more bombs dropped on North Vietnam by B-52s than during the whole of the Second World War. Were they their own people? It's kind of, if you look at a class oh. structure in America, yeah. well, we're just sending off poor, you know, poor black guys, young men. Exactly. You know, if, if, yep. if you're a politician, there's no way your son was ending up there if you didn't want him to be there, I guess. Well, uh, well a lot of American, you know, that upper, the, the upper class, a lot of the mm. American... Families did lose, you know, JFK, right. JFK, or the whole family. Like, yeah. so it was a common thing for. Mm. Um, but he was happy to be there, I guess. Like he could have got I out think, of it if he wanted. Yeah. Even, mm. Maybe even McNamara's mm. one of his sons was serving as well. It right. just, yeah, a terrible. And even that didn't make him pull up. No, a terrible stop. indictment. Mm. Anyway, um, moving on to economics. Yes, a topic important for the podcast. Mm. Uh, if I had to book a, a book. Um, for me, now, this some people groan when you mention this, but um, I think it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's The Grapes of Wrath mm-hmm. by John Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. Um, so published in 1939, um, book won him the Pulitzer Prize mm. and heavily cited um, for his Nobel Prize in 62. Um, uh, set during the Great Depression, um, it's the story of the dislocation of Farmers, tenant farmers, uh, tenant farmers were people who they didn't own the land, uh, but what they did is that they they uh, they brought their skills, their knowledge and skills of farming, and they paid their way through production of crop. So they, you know, 
So they were allowed to use a patch of land yeah, and, and paid some rent yeah, on it and, and then they could keep whatever they grew yeah. and sold. Hundreds of thousands of Americans in the southern states, just mm. tenant farmers. No, mm. no, They bring no capital to the job. They don't own the land. Mm. So harking back to like feudal times. Mm. But hundreds of thousands of workers, as a part of society, they – Somebody else owned the land, but they worked the land and they brought their skills and they paid they paid their way through produce, you know, mm. that sort of stuff. But come drought, economic depression in the in the nineteen thirties, um, banks foreclosed and um, well, hundreds of thousands of Americans were moved off their land mm. forcibly. Uh, mm. Moved off their land, um, and it tells the story about a lot of them were told go to California, go west. Mm. There's jobs there in the making. Uh, and it's this grueling, grueling story of, but beautifully written, um, and and quite a lot of stoicism as well. It, it, unlike other books, which draw out the, you know, re- really evo- try to evoke emotion, Steinbeck's pretty. It's pretty like it's a straightforward story where, you know, like like grandma dies on the, they just have to jump in one of these jalopies and they've got to go across high, mm. Route sixty six right across the middle of America. Grandma doesn't make it. They just got to mm. stop by the side of the road. They dig a ditch, they bury, and they've got to move on. Mm. Not a lot said, but you just go, oh, jeez. And Steinbeck did a lot of research, uh, uh, allegedly um, stole some of the research too. Like took a, another particular writer who was writing a book, got a lot of research from them as well and mm. sort of spoiled their book a bit. Their book didn't get published for a uh, longer year, so okay. there's a bit of a controversy about that. But but it's very detailed and it's very, very factually based. Right. But by the time they get to California, it's not what it's cracked up to be and mm. there's an oversupply of labour. This, this is why I think it's a strong book on... I mean, I'm a capitalist. Mm. I'm a I'm a I'm a free market person. But um, I don't need to read books to tell me why I'm right. I, mm. I read these books to tell me what's wrong. What it's not perfect. Mm. There are flaws. Capitalism needs perfect. some regulation. Yeah, mm. and this is the book that does it for me. Mm. Um, so there's an oversupply of labour in the in in the Western states there. So mm. when they turn up, these labourers, um, well, the farm owner comes out and says, "Well, we've got a crop to pick." And they auction off the labour who's mm. willing to do the work for like one cent an hour or something like that. Yeah. And a couple of people come forward. Okay, yep. right, right. Okay, one and a half or two cents an hour. Right. Who's going to? So yep. you're, you're auctioning off. There's a reverse auction of the labour. Mm. And even the even the camps that play that pay well, uh, the only food you can get is from the general store run by the owner. Yeah. Who charges high prices? Yeah. Um, takes all the money off you then. Yep. So you're just back where you sort of stay. Virtual slavery. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. And um, so but it is a – it's a really compelling read. I think it's beautifully written. Steinbeck was a titan of his era. This, mm. this, this guy, when he started writing, he was – they studied him in university. He yep. was he was a really big uh, writer at the time. Mm. Um, spoiler alert, though. Spoiler alert. Yep. If you don't want to know, don't listen now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just be careful. We'll give us um, yeah. come back in a minute. Okay. Yep. If you don't like books that have abrupt, weird endings, oh yeah, yeah, you'll be pissed off with this. One. Right. Yes. This yep. one. So you're not going to say what the ending is. No. It's just a really abrupt, abrupt and weird. Yeah. So yeah. like for example, some people um, would find it unsatisfying. Some dis- absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So so this one has an ending like that and is written about quite a bit and it's for me quite unsatisfying. Um, yes. But like other authors, like um, one of my favourite authors, Franz Kafka, his three novels, he died before they were published. He didn't want them published. Mm. They're all unfinished. Mm. Drive, that drives my wife, drives my wife bananas. How can you read a book when it doesn't have an ending? I said, well, you know, it's mm. I'm okay with that. But even, even this one yep. <laughs> annoyed me. Yeah. <laughs> so. And at some point there they're dumping um, 
produce oh, because that, of price controls. Yeah, they're, they're forced well, to. Well, they've got, or, or, the thing is they've got starving workers. Yeah. They'll actually burn a crop to, 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 uh, to constrict supply to keep the price up. Right. Okay, yeah. and that's happening in California there. Yeah, that's right, yeah. burning the oranges. It's something which yeah, you, yeah, pouring too kerosene much. over yeah. it and yeah. whatever. Instead of giving it yeah. to people yeah. to eat, yeah. you'd rather burn it to keep prices high. Yes. Yeah, and this is a, yeah, a common thing done in the, in the – Now, even today, yeah. even today, I was talking to someone at work who they've been to California. They said they got on a plane, they flew over the fields, mm-hmm. uh, the, all these uh, farms, and he was surprised. He's a he's – a, um, he's a – well, this particular guy is big, is big agricultural expert. He said, "Hang on, there's all these people down there in amongst all the trees. And there's people everywhere." He said, "What's what's going on?" And he was told they're pulling weeds. What do you mean? Oh, well, in America, it's cheaper to pay Mexicans to pull weeds out by hand, right, than to use herbicide. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And these are these are third generation, no citizenship. Mm. Just there for the wages, but they're, they're, mm. they're, it's cheaper to get them to pull weeds out by hand than yeah. to use it. Now that's probably maybe a good story in terms mm. of an ecological issue, but yep. shows you how cheap the labour is. Mm. And that's happening today. Mm. Yeah, and these farms—that's they're part of the economics of farming in mm. California. I've got a link to an article oh. here that's talking a bit about the book. Um, now, there's a reference here to Joads, J-O-A-D-S. Jode. Jodes. Yeah, the Jodes are the family. family. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the Okies and the Arkies? Yeah, so Okies from Oklahoma, Arkies yeah. from Arkansas. Okay, all right. And it says here just um, it's hard to say whether the Jodes and their cohort, if voting today, would rally behind the Democratic outsider, this was um, a reference to Bernie Sanders, or the Republican one, Donald Trump. On the one hand, the Okies and Arkies of Steinbeck's novel support a socialist vision of shared resources, of all folks helping other folks. They have deep, tragic, tangible grievances with big business and they're getting ready to unionise. But on the other hand, they share traditions connected to Trump's rise, the tendency to stress sharply differentiated gender roles, to prize aggressiveness and to disdain weakness. Um, as my colleague Yoni puts it, and to match strong familial loyalty with a clannish suspicion of outsiders. So, um, really, most of all, they are men who have lost what's theirs and want it back. Yes, Marjode's cry. They was the time when we was on the land. We had a boundary then, as parallels to Trump's wall and his righteous slogan, "Make America Great Again." So. Oh, no, definitely. I'm not sure mm. about some of the other comments, mm. whether they're fair or not, but definitely. Well, look, well who the, would the Jodes have voted for, yeah. a Bernie Sanders or a Trump? Uh, because well, on the one hand, you've got this conflict of needing to. Well, they're part of a family of tenant mm. farmers for mm. generation after generation, but mm. this is the generation that failed. Yes. The drought, the depression, economic hardship, yes. things get kicked off the land. Yes. They really just do want to go back to what they were doing. Yes. Um, as freeze, as freeze. As free as they'd ever been, yes, and living the American dream. Yeah, what's yes. come of the of the apparently the, uh, the the economic wealth in in California is just an illusion. Yes, yeah, and yeah. They're, they're, it's a failed illusion. So, but there's a lot of people die along the way. I mean, Tom Joad is the main 
He's yep. the main son and he's the main so, character and he his character resonates. So would they have voted for – so at the end of the book, when it's yeah. all gone to shit in California, would they have voted for Bernie Sanders oh, and his socialist ideas or would they have I voted think, for Trump I think some of them with his, yeah. um, with his, um, you know, let's get back what we used to have sort of – Well, some of, the fa- some of the family mm. members abandon them. They mm. leave. Mm. They just – can't handle it. So we've got to go find a different way, and they depart right. and don't help out mum and dad, and they just mm. take off. Mm. You know, um, Tom Tom gets into the union movement. You mm. know, tries to union, help unionize the labor to fight back and things like that. And you know, the the character like Tom Jode's a character that still resonates today. I mean, um, he's the subject of songs even. Was, right. So I think Woody Guthrie, the Ballad of Tom Jode. And so, so what, how do you describe Tom Jode? What sort of character is he? Well, he's the, like the hero. Right. Yeah. So he comes into the story. The story starts with him. He's right. coming back from jail. He had to go right. to jail for killing a man. But it was right. one of those kind of you know ambiguous kind of self defence. Right. You know, but. Um, yeah, so he's a criminal. Right. He's trying to do it. When he gets back to the farm, he finds they're, they're out in their ass and they're in somebody else's house and they've got to move. And so he, he tries his best to help the family, but everything's up against him. And well, yeah, it's a story of his demise as well. But yes. one of Bruce Springsteen's albums is the story of Tom Joad. Okay. Not Ballad of Tom Joad, but it's the ghost of Tom Joad. Yeah. So it's still a, it's this. So I think he's. He'd, he'd be a Democrat, I reckon. Right. Yeah, definitely. But K- other members of the family, I think, might be, they just want to go back to make Oklahoma great again. Yeah, that might be Trump. KB in the chat room says, um, would have been working and not able to get to the polls, mate. <laughs> well, that's right, isn't it? <laughs> Depending which state law yeah. is yes. in place. Yeah. yeah, they couldn't afford to get to the polls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got to talk about the title. And I should I should say, look, I, I, yeah. that's, it's my... It's a, um, it's a thick one. No, no, no. This no. is, this is, a comp- this is ah. the collective works of Steinbeck. Ah, so, uh, it's, so it's only one of those. But it is, uh, it's the first one and it'd be about... Um, Average size. Yeah, it's average right. size book. So, right, yeah, okay. So The Grapes of Wrath, just the uh, the title, I yes, think, is worthy of... Yes, the biblical of, theme. You should yes. mention it. Um, so let me just see. Um, um, find the reference it is. Well, it was his wife who came up with the title. Oh, get out. There. Yeah, because yeah. he was having trouble coming up with the title. So she came up with it and... There's a biblical reference and there's a reference to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. So in um, the phrase grapes of wrath is a biblical allusion or reference to the book of Revelation, passage 14, uh, must be 19 to 20, which reads, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. So that's from the Bible. And then um, we've got the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which the lyrics were written by Julia Howe in, or Howie, in 1861. And the opening stanza... um, And this is the President's Anthem. President's anthem. Yeah, I think there's some connection with the you know the president of the United States. This is the 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 battle hymn of the Republic is the president's. Okay, I think it's as a. I'll have to look. Play it up, when the president yeah, enters a room yeah, or something. It, is it? It's not. Oh. Yeah, it's for the it's for the office of the president. Okay, um, so I went on to um, YouTube and um, look. Ordinarily, you hear this as a big choir with a marching band, 
but you can't actually hear the words when you hear that version. So I found a version that was copyright-free and you can actually hear the lyrics. So pay attention to the lyrics of this um, song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It goes on. So, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Um... He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. It's, it's, it's a rallying cry for the troops that God is, is, is getting vengeance over evil and those awful slavers and we will have a righteous ending to yes. this and God Ju- will make sure. Justice and righteousness. Yes, is what it's all about. Um, so that's apparently where the title has come from. Probably from that and or from the Revelation uh, yeah. sort of and extract as well. As we know from reading the letters of Paul in the mm. New Testament that uh, the early Christian movement was very focused on poor and the dispossessed. The early mm. Christian movement had many women involved. Mm-hmm. Many of Paul's letters, were some of them addressed to women. They were mm. leaders of the church in certain areas. Women had no very small role in the Judeo faith, mm. in the Hebrew faith. They have, they have minor role. Um, and uh, they spend a lot of time r- cultivating support of the poor and mm. dispossessed. So um, that Christian element's still there in the American, you know, society. But but yeah, the grapes of wrath are the the sort of the ill content and and, and ill content and, and anger that's being stored up. Mm. Yeah, and uh, but he's got God's going to trample that out. Mm. Yeah, and um, there'll be something new. Mm. Uh, um, I just want to see if there's an extract from the book that talks about it. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, here we go. Um, oh, they're talking about the, the food and the crops being um, dumped and stuff. Um, and they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listen to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze, and in the eyes of the people there is a failure, and in the eyes of the hungry there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. There you go. Powerful stuff. So they slaught, slaughtered livestock as well. Yeah, right? it looks like it. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Yep. Whilst farmers are, well, workers are starving. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Got to keep the price up. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Um, look, we're doing well for time. We, yep. we, we thought we might not yep. get there, but yeah, no, we've we've got one more, is it? Yeah, no, a couple, no, a couple more. But yep. I was just in terms of the amount of time we've, uh, you know, we haven't we haven't been racing along. Yep. Um, look, uh, only a couple of books to go. Um, final topic is politics, and yep. I, I feel compelled. I've got to mention the. This is this distinction. I think it's it's been part of in your podcast as well, part of this, making this point about there is a distinction between the political system and the economic system. So you this idea about you could have you've got cap, people often get confused. I think a lot of people think that um, uh, it's socialism versus democracy in the yes. world, and it's like no, no. And it's an important point to make is that. Mm. 
you can have democratically elected socialist or communist governments if you want. You can yes. have democratically elected, you know, capitalists. You, you can have you can have de- undec- undemocratic capitalists capitalism. as well. You know, so so the point is the yeah. the political element here, and the books are the the primary book is George Orwell's Nineteen Eighty Four. It's it's the topic of dictatorship. Mm. It's not about the economics. It's just dictatorship and the evils of dictatorship. Mm. Um, this is really, really important for Orwell. He'd, 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 been, he'd actually fought, Orwell had actually left England. He went and signed up for the Spanish Civil War and fought, on, fought against the fascists there. Mm. Um, today that would be quite a difficult thing to do. You'd be probably committing certain offences to that sort of stuff, but those were the days where one could set off and, you know, fight in a foreign war for, for your principles. Mm. Um, I think he was not able to serve in the Second World War. Uh, but um, not this uh, his two books that he's famous for, Animal Farm and 1984, published in 45 and then 49, and they really do come out of that, his war experience and his, his fear that um, uh, dictatorships were growing mm. and that England would be consumed, eventually consumed and the world would be eventually consumed. So um, I, think, I think everybody... 1984 is a book you read in school. I think Animal Farm. I should say I, I, I've got them both listed. I can't split the two. They're essentially mm. the same thing. The Animal Farm being allegorical and 1984 being um, a, more of a story, just a, just a normal novel. But um, uh, it's the same point. Yeah, that um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and um, and I think I think everybody sort of knows the the plot line. Uh, in 1984, that the individual who's part of the party who has a job to do his his job is erasing people from history and rewriting history and you know erasing people out of photographs and things like that and he's very good at it too but he mm. knows he knows it's wrong mm. yeah and mm. it's the story of his attempt his attempt to fight his way out of it mm. and obviously how it fails but that idea that um, if you weren't you couldn't know what the truth was because you couldn't no. rely on the written word anymore because it had been so contaminated so by contaminated. rewritings yep. that you just didn't know the truth. Um, is a is one where we're getting to today. Well, that's it's right. More yeah. and more, where you're just yeah. inundated and with polarizing views of, and there's enough of some crazy notions that you start thinking, yeah. "Do I have to give some credence to this?" Um, yeah. So if you haven't yeah. read 1984, it, mm. again. It's not a big book. It's easy. Mm. It's and it's beautifully written. It's uh, Orwell's a great writer, um, and and it's got a great. It's got well, not a great ending. It's not a happy ending in that sense, but but in terms of endings, mm. beautifully constructed. Um, it's a great book. One of the funny things is when you do you go back and you do some prep for this and research these things. Nineteen ninety four is the only book that doesn't have a section like on Wikipedia or, or reviews where they talk about, oh, it's reception. Like there's no – all the other books say, oh, well, this book, people didn't like mm. it when it was published, but it became – 1984, all people say is, well, we don't even need to mention it. We just need to say how many things that we know come from, you know, newspeak, doublespeak, mm. you know, um, uh, the um, Department 101. And mm. there's so many concepts that we mm. use in everyday speech, like the Orwellian sort of – References to you know the um, was it the Department of Love is actually the War Department <laughs> yes. that sort of yeah. you know this uh, it's actually hard to find a, a, a 
it's not really part of the 1984 description to describe, oh, now what's this, what did people think about it? Because it's actually, the people just simply go straight to, well, of course, we all know it's embedded in our thinking. Mm. This, the concepts that are here, just embedded and everyone's aware of them. And we, we don't even need to talk about, oh, was the book well received or not? It's just, no, that's just a given. Mm. And it's, it's rare that you come upon that when you sort of do your research that nobody even talks about, oh, what was it a success or not? Um, every other book on my list, there's a you know, description of, oh, well, you know, whether, whether it won a prize or it didn't or it was, or it was a failure initially. Um, the reviews I've looked at, they just get straight to what all the things in our current culture and thinking, which really come back to this particular book or Animal Farm as well. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's an, it's an amazing uh, book uh, and I think it's well worth the read and it's not a very long one as well. Definitely if you hadn't read any of the books so far and had to pick one, yeah. definitely you have to. 84. Yeah, yes. 1984. Yeah. yeah. Now the last one, and I should say, uh, uh, now, uh, Australian. Uh, I didn't, this was not to, this was not because I felt I needed to get an Australian in on the list. Mm. Um, it's uh, the uh, Don Watson, Death Sentence. Mm. Yeah. Um, now he, he's not dead. Mm. I accept that. Uh, 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 Paul uh, Neil Sheen's not dead either, mm. but um, uh, but everybody else. <laughs> and this is not fiction. <laughs> this is not fiction. Mm. Uh, it look. This is a um, little bit the writer first. Uh, Don Watson, um, published in two thousand three. Um, he's an Australian writer, um, PhD, um, award winning, but perhaps most known for being Paul Keating's speechwriter. Mm. He was prime minister, and um, and wrote the Keating's Redfern speech, yep. which was. Uh, uh, delivered shortly after the Marbo decision on mm. native title um, and said to be a foundation stone for Kevin Rudd's apology speech then. So mm-hmm. that nobody, everything that Keaty said, nobody really said anything about it after that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it's quite famous speech. And I think um, amongst, I read a review that said amongst famous speeches on some ABC list, there was, you know, there was, you know, Martin Luther King. So that sort of, there were these famous ones and Redfern sort of, Apparently polls up there. Have with you ABC. listened to it? Yeah, I have read it. No, I've read. I've read it. So I haven't listened to I it. I listened yet. to it. Yeah. Bits of it. Yeah. Because there's a lot of background noise on the audio oh. when you're listening to it. I've just read the script, but, but um, I don't know. It it didn't strike me as as worthy of the accolades. But maybe that's just me. So oh. you 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 read it. You I thought it was as you read good. it, you thought it was pretty. I think pretty good speech. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, for a prime minister to make those sort of mm. um, concessions and statements mm. and. Yeah. Anyway, but he—that's his one of his claims to fame. Yeah, mm. writing that. Um, this book, this book is a look a genuine diatribe in the in the proper sense of the word. It's a haranguing denouncement of. It's just an angry old man having a rant. <laughs> no, but it's better than that. It's oh. better than that. It's better than that. It is a a denouncement of the poor quality of corporate and government language, Rock. and in true Orwellian style, just. Fails abysmally to, to be truthful, accurate. It's a, just a complete condemnation of that. Uh, but it is a diatribe. Yeah, yep. it is. And he just gives ringing. lots of examples, lots does of he, examples of, of and, corporate speak and people taking yeah. fifty words to say what could have been said in three or something. That's right. But, yeah. yeah, and just mm. just ambiguous and misleading language, like you know, the mm. tax office talking about our clients. Mm. Oh, you mean the people you're suing? Right. Oh yes, right. our client service. Right. What yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff like that, which is just it's just yeah. not right, mm. it's inaccurate, mm. you know. Um, so he's a big one for the plain, straight talking, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And that's his that's his big complaint. Um, mm. and look, there is a, a to hammer this home. This, this is quite, I think, this is when I read this, this really hit me in the face. I really, mm. I, I thought I actually wanted to include, I actually wanted to include this in the article that I 
Mm-hmm. I did actually have an initial draft. I had this is in my conclusion, right. but it got it got taken out. It's a bit too controversial. Right. Um, but uh, he says these words: um, democracy, and this is this point about totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Democracy depends upon plain language. It depends upon common understanding. We need to feel safe in the assumption that words mean what they are commonly understood to mean. Mm. Deliberate ambiguities, slides of meaning, obscure, incomprehensible or meaningless words poison the democratic process by leaving people less able to make informed or rational decisions. They erode trust. Depleted language always comes with a depleted democracy. The language of undemocratic systems is proof enough of this. Mm. Um, I, I find that really, that you know, I... I wanted to quote that in the article mm. I've written recently because it's really very important to me. Mm. Um, we just want, just want truth. Mm. We want to get to it. And I think, mm. you know, uh, one of the reasons why I think I picked it up was that, oh, hey, hey, it's an important book for me, um, but um, I come back to your podcast and you know, you, the opening I'm words. Speaking, oh, yes, what the hell happened on this planet in the yeah. last... That's uh, what we need. Yeah. We need more yeah. plain speaking. We mm. need more truth in the world mm. and people but, saying, what, what yeah. what's going on? Yeah, well... The way power works, uh, you know, in my mind I've thought at times, couldn't they put this podcast on ABC at 1 o'clock, one a.m. in the morning? Like, mm. wouldn't hurt. There's just no way it could get accepted in anything like that now mm. because it would offend too many people. And so, so really you've got independent media now is where you get your best ideas. Like I subscribe to a lot of blogs and podcasts and sort of, independent stuff where I get yeah. the most interesting, thought-provoking stuff because it's just not coming out in mainstream. As I said at the outset, even just putting the simplest mm. together, I had these feelings of, well, you know, there's only one woman there. Mm. Right. My, I don't have any Asian content. Zen is the closest I come to it. I, yes. But, like, I don't make any apologies about mm. that. So I felt like saying, like, in this, mm. as I've listened to the podcast, you know, this, this period we're in when wokeness and mm. cancel culture yeah, it's important mm. to me to be able to say, look, if you don't like my list, That's I don't I, complain about yeah, it, but yeah. give me yours. Yeah. Give me your, as you've said often, like mm. if you don't like an idea, well, what's your idea? Like mm. tell, tell us what you want to do. What, mm. What's your idea? No criticism there. Um, but, yeah, it struck me when I was putting mm. it together, oh, hang on, it could be. I could be criticised for this list. And I think, oh, well, I, I don't care. Well, you're a product but, of your culture, yeah. like you've grown up. In well, a, in and a what's wrong with just saying, well, that's mm. the way it is for me? Mm. Um, mm. And... But let me know what you think. What, mm. What's your idea? What's mm. your book I'd read? That'd be good. But no, mm. you see too much of this, oh, your your list is terrible, you haven't done mm. this, you haven't done this, or maybe you should read this. It's like, right. oh, what books are you reading? Mm. Like, tell me tell me that. Mm. And I'd rather hear I'd rather hear more information, mm. sort of less criticism, mm. and then people can make their own decision mm. and, frankly, read what you like. Mm. Well, I'm going to jump straight into The Grapes of Wrath because I've never read it. Oh, so uh, for me, that's uh, – and I think I'm going to go Wuthering Heights after that. Um, I'd be and, delighted to hear what you think. Yeah. yeah that's the first two off the cabs off the rank. So um, – Any other comments? Or? Uh, um, Karen said she reread 1984 recently and it was scary how prescient it was yeah. in so many ways. Um, Brilliant book. The MSM certainly engages in some doublespeak. MSM is, uh, I'm not sure. I, I, 
Yeah. What's MSM again, Karen? Anyway, um, Karen says, nice one, Peter. No one should be criticised for their preferences. So she's enjoyed it. Um, I've enjoyed it, Peter. This oh, is thanks. a good change of pace where we just need to get away from the minutiae of the day-to-day COVID uh, yeah. infection rates. A bit and- of escapism mm. but not mindless pulp. A purpose yeah. to it, yes. Yeah, exactly. Mainstream media, MSM. There we go. Yeah, I picked up something. Else. Yeah, so um, that that was good. Um, I reckon after, uh, do I want to quickly slip in some non? Just very briefly, books that have influenced me in recent times. I think uh, if you're looking for some non-fiction, Naomi Klein, uh, the Shock Doctrine, had a. Have you read that one at all? No. Good effect on me, basically good exposition of how power has worked, particularly in the third world and how um, they've just been shafted through no fault of their own by powerful American machinations mostly. Uh, So I've enjoyed that one. And on a similar vein, The Divide by Jason Hickel makes some, you know, I sort of used to have a view, oh, these Third world countries, why can't they just get their act together and just oh, civilise? But they've had so much stacked against stacked them. Stacked against them is the point. Yeah. That the system, um, I'm going to get into some early American history mm. because they basically created their economy from the beginning by imposing tariffs so they could get their own manufacturing um, enterprises up and running. And, oh, so the, and the having developed was, a manufacturing yeah. business, America, they then, uh, you know, through sheltering, and they then went out to the world and said, right, everybody else, you've got to open up your markets to us so that you don't get a chance oh, to so shelter and nurture an industry. You've got to open you up your economies. So a lot of these third world countries are, are stuck in agriculture because they need a protection mechanism to get their industries going. I didn't realise that because the British manufacturing was at its peak yeah. and its height and, and, yeah, I never thought to myself, yeah. how did the Americans establish their industry when yeah. they would have, as a British colony, would have been flooded by British goods? Yeah, so they they use protectionism, oh. which they've denied the third world. So both the shock doctrine and the divide are really good for sort wow. of... Okay. And I have a lot more sympathy for them than I had before. And, um, um, but you're going to read some fiction. Is the first one fiction? Uh, none of those are fiction. Oh, no, no. okay. Because uh, well, you're going to read some fiction, though. I, I'm going to read the ones you've just told oh, me. Okay. I'm going to read Wuthering Heights there and The go. Greats of Wrath. Tick so, Yeah, I'm going to. Oh, actually, here's my other recommendation for um, kind of along the lines of The Greats of Wrath is this is fiction uh, Lionel Shriver, The Mandibles. Oh, okay. So this has got elements of of the Grapes of Wrath in it, in that uh, set in America and uh, there's some sort of um, collapse in the economy. The American dollar collapses. Uh, their economy is, is stuffed. Dy- dystopian future? Dystopian oh, future. Love we love that. dystopian. Yeah. And in this particular family that was quite wealthy, um, range of different characters, lots of them, not particularly likable. Yep. But uh, the really rich um, entrepreneurial class in the family looked down on uh, members of the family. I think one was a nurse and one might have been a public servant who were just on very average wage while they were high-flying sort of um, aristocratic. 
And when the collapse in the economy came, uh, they lost all their money, but um, and everybody was losing money everywhere. And the only ones who had any money were those who worked as a public servant because the government was still paying wages. Feels so they became. Yeah, it feels a bit like today. Yes. <laughs> there is a little bit of that Ooh. in there. Yeah. Um, in that today, right yeah. now, a secure job as a policeman or something like that. Um, oh, the public, got, public service is fully occupied. Like yeah. working long, like. At capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's oh. suddenly a lot more attractive for people who previously were happy to, to um, try their hand in the capitalist economy where they're going, actually, there's some risks to having a business. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mm. The, I mean, I'll tell you, when the, hay, when the sun shines and they're making hay, everyone's happy. But, yeah. you know, uh, there's risk. Yep. Yeah. So I quite enjoyed that one. Oh, that's good. And she's a good writer. Lionel Shriver, yep. really good writer. Um, another interesting one is Eric Schlosser, Command and Control, and he tells the story of the um, the various nuclear weapons disasters that we narrowly avoided. Yes. Oh, wow. And it's a really good read as to it's just crazy things happen with nuclear weapons where they've just got atomic bombs in planes flying them around, and these planes crash at times, and and different things have happened throughout history that we were so close to a nuclear disaster that we yeah. just narrowly avoided through pure chance. And there's a whole bunch of different incidents that he relates, which is done in a very readable way. Yep. So, Oh, that's great. I feel that in Australia, oh, for me, I mean, I, was a, I knew of it, but it didn't really, as a kid, it affected me, but I was listening to a broadcast on ABC Radio I don't know, a couple of nights ago, this guy explaining how he'd, growing up in America, Mm. used to keep him awake at night as a kid. Right. Like that was that kind of mm. – I know my dad talks about – mentioned that, you know, because he, he was born in 39 and he had to come south to Brisbane in 42, yep. you know, with the Brisbane line. And, um, you know, he said the, you know, the idea of a Japanese soldier would be a nightmare. So it was sort of, you were really worried mm. about the war. Mm. But these Americans saying that, yeah, there were a lot of American youth were – it was like a nightmare. You wake up thinking – the bombs are going to go off or things like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel it really touched me as much, but now I'm hearing more about it. Mm. Uh, I didn't realise it, it was a stre- like as today's time, a lot mm. of people are very stressed and worried. Yeah, it was a stressful time in America for youth, mm. thinking maybe the world's going to end. Well, Bay of Pigs was pretty close. Yeah. Very close, yeah. yeah. So um, so that's an interesting book. And um, oh. Uh, there's one called The Goodness Paradox by Richard Wrangham, and that's one that's really interesting as to how human beings basically became um, um, domesticated. And why, you know, you can pack 300 human beings on an aeroplane and we'll all survive a 12-hour flight without killing each other and... Any other sort of – in the animal world, there's a lot of fighting and bickering amongst creatures that mm-hmm. we've managed to avoid. And he basically describes how if you look at a puppy dog, like a, a, a domesticated dog with its floppy ears and its, its you know, friendly personality and different things about it compared to, say, a wolf that it evolved from, and he describes how we, as our current human beings, are actually like that domesticated dog compared to um, 200,000 years ago. And how did we get to that point? Because nobody was in control and domesticating us and breeding us Good like point. we were yeah. doing with, with dogs. 
and it's a theory where uh, once we'd learnt fire and we could um, get food into our bellies and we had time that we could understand language, once we had language we could, the alpha male lost control because previously the alpha male could just take over and bully everybody. Now, is this You've raised this yeah. before, oh, yeah, yeah. and I'm starting to remember yeah. it. Yes. And with language, um, beta males could gather together and just say, we've had enough of that alpha male, let's yeah. just kill him. Yeah. And, and, and that ability to kill off a bully is, is the start of a domestication process that happened in human beings. Um, there's a whole heap of other things wow. involved in it yeah. and there's sort of biological things yeah. that he talks about. But it's a really interesting view of how we became a domesticated version of what we were before. Um, and this view of life by David Sloan Wilson, he also looks at human behaviour and, and really how human society is kind of an organism and he's the one who had this example of the chickens. And if you were to breed chickens where you took the chicken that was laying the most eggs and bred, took that chicken away and bred from it and then of the batch that was raised, which chicken was laying the most eggs and you would think that's a way of getting a chicken that develop, you know, lays the most eggs. The alternative is to have a batch of 10 chickens here and a batch of 10 chickens there. Which batch is creating the most eggs? Okay, I'll breed from that batch yeah. and I'll create more batches. And that's far more effective and actually works because in the first case when you're relying on the individual, what you end up doing is you're selecting the bully. That chicken is pecking away and stealing all the food from the weaker ones, grows bigger and lays lots of eggs. Well, it's not sustainable. Correct. So it, if you breed from that kind of chicken, you end up within five generations with a bunch of psychopathic chickens that are just trying to kill each other. Yeah. Whereas if you do it on a group basis, then um, if a group is successful, it's because they're harmonious and they've worked together without without the bullying that goes on in between and you end up with um, a successful breeding program. And, you know, transfer that to America today. <laughs> They're a bunch of bloody psychopaths because they've lost the idea of community well, they, and yeah. and – they're allowing the psychopathic chickens to just peck away and kill the other chickens. Um, they've lost their sense of yeah, groupness. It, so. it, oh, look, I, that, mm. that resonates with me as well. Mm. It, it's become more obvious now in recent times that and I didn't really believe that other people. I think mm. you'd said it to me before, and mm. I, I wasn't sure about it. But I'm not, the Americans, I don't think they actually agree with the common good. No. And you've yeah. just given me a book on the common good. Yeah. yeah so I'm going to you know, deal with this topic again in yeah. the near future. It, it's, yeah. it, there's, America, there's the state or country, mm. there's me, but this idea of maybe in Australia mm. we have a view of the common good. I'm sure yeah. there are some Americans who have a view of the common good, but yeah. I, I think I might have said it the other day in a comment that I sort of become a bit disappointed with the – I really thought the ordinary US citizen – was better than that. Mm. I, I really thought they cared more, and I, it's become more obvious to me lately that I, I don't think they do actually have a. It's not a common. It's not the mainstay of their. Yeah, but when you've society. been brainwashed into yeah. this individual liberty um, yeah. mindset, you've lost. They've lost sight of the common good. They've lost sight of, of yeah. common society that they're relying on and they're a part of. So, um, 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, and if you were to try and raise that as a concept, you're just denounced as a socialist. And well, you're often yeah. talking on the podcast yeah. about the need to mm. disconnect and break yeah. away from mm. those sort of alliances. Um, mm. uh, we've got our, our military alliances, which we're dependent on. But yeah, mm. I, I've become recently more aware of that mm. through the COVID crisis, and there's people who just, just won't won't do what's really needed to protect their yeah neighbour. Yeah. And, really, and I find it very upsetting. Yeah. And we need to get to the bottom of this in terms of things like what's our response to COVID here because oh, the 12th man yeah. has a very libertarian view oh, and he's, his view is, yeah. oh, people should be allowed to do as much as they like without being restrained and he sees that as the ultimate goal. But mm. it loses sight that these people at the same time want to go out and enjoy uh, the common, the commons. And the commons has been built up by yeah. generations beforehand and rely it's yeah. it's a regulated thing, the commons. You don't, as an individual, get to use the commons as you want. Um, and our our society and our participation in it is is a use of the commons. And no, I agree, I agree. Um, so of course, you know, like mm. you know, don't blame all Americans and, mm. and we similar thoughts in Britain and Australia and mm. you know, but but I do think in Australia there is a better understanding or acceptance mm. of the common good, and the same mm. in Britain, Canada. Yep. But it's being whittled away. It's being whittled away, mm. yeah. 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 Right, Peter. Well, we've discussed some big ideas and we've Hopefully. got away from the day-to-day, so I don't, you know, I don't know how this will go with people. We've got less, room in the ch- less people in the chat room than we normally do, but um, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, give us some feedback and um, that would be nice. If you didn't enjoy it, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> It's nice to get some positive feedback and to do something different. Um, so I enjoyed it. Um, not going to do it every week like this, but just every now and again, mixing it up like this is fun for me. So yeah, and it's uh, been a pleasure. Thanks mm. for the invite. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks, yeah. Peter. Much appreciated. Uh, I'll be back with the boys next week with the usual rundown of, of what's happened in day-to-day stuff. Bye for now. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Hallelujah, His truth is marching on. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on 
what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.